All right, everybody. Thank you very much for listening. If you want to help us out, you need to subscribe. That helps us out and lets us know that you are there and listening. Also, we'll keep you up to speed on everything we got coming up in the distant and near future. Peace. In late 2017, Three men joined together in a pact to see what they could collectively do to advance civilization, further the cause of world peace, and elevate mankind. These three men were internationally renowned musician and Linkin Park multi-instrumentalist Dave Phoenix Farrell, multiple PGA Tour champion and world-class golfer Brendan Steele, and Mark. They named themselves the Members. Those who they chose to sit with and ponder the mysteries of the universe, they named the guests. What you're about to listen to is one of those historic conversations. Welcome to the Member Guest Podcast. Welcome to Member Guest. And we're in. Admittedly, sometimes I listen back to our own podcast. I don't know if that's kind of dorky or lame or not. Is that dorky? I listen to them. Okay. I think we're pretty amazing. So I listen to them, and from the beginning, I always think like, okay, we're starting with some energy, like da-da-da-da-da. And then when I listen back to it, after Mark has pushed all those wonderful things together, I'm like, coming out of the intro, it's never quite possible to hit that same tone or level of epicness coming into the podcast. Does that make any sense? Yeah, you're doing pretty good right now. <laughs> no, I, or, or, I, or. Yeah, do Dan you always. taking a breath in, in 30 seconds. That's because I told our guest, who I will name later, that I don't breathe on the mic. I breathe over here off the mic, and yeah. then I come back on the mic. It's very, it's a very pro move. Maybe it's just me mis- listening to myself speaking in the beginning and not feeling like that's it, carrying the same gravitas as the intro itself. And you guys are like, no, it's always really good. We're trying to make you feel better. I, I, someone help him out here. <laughs> you guys just so, want. I'll just do this by myself. <laughs> we. So today we are. I, I was thinking we should have a an episode where we just tell each other that we're going to do everything we can to make the most work possible for Mark. So like, just on a day where he's sitting over there and just shaking his head, going like, "How am I going to edit this? This isn't going to work at all. Like, what is happening?" Maybe Mark we, Mark doesn't edit anything, Brendan. This is all first may, take magic. Maybe we don't even need to do that. Maybe we're doing that right now. <laughs> By the way, listeners, this conversation never existed. <laughs> <laughs> we have recorded one episode of the podcast at my house, and I, I loved it. Well, to backtrack, I loved the idea of recording at my house because that was obviously the least amount of work I would ever have to possibly do for a podcast. I mean, it's at my house. I don't have to go anywhere. You had to wake up. I basically have to just be home, and then Mark will come and set up all the gear, and I can laugh as he sweats over that, and then we can record a podcast, and then we're done. I don't have to drive anywhere. I can drink some And beers. then he packs it all up, and yeah, he has to drive it home. <laughs> what, what could possibly go wrong? Except when you have a coughing six-year-old in the background the entire time, and I have like some dude who's working on the home alarm system the whole time, and it's making beep noises. And I've got Who like, was supposed to be there for, what, like 90 minutes, and he was there for 17 hours? No, no joke. <laughs> He was supposed to be there at 8 o'clock in the morning. In our understanding, it was going to be an hour, hour and a half project. We left to go to dinner at 6.30 at night. He was still in our house. We just had to be like, hey, man, 
I'm so sorry. Like, I feel like you're part of the family at this point. <laughs> We're going to dinner. Like, do you want us to bring you anything back? Like, you've been working on this thing, making beep noises for like, we've done a whole podcast. Like, we've done all kinds of stuff with like just chaos going on in the house. Suffice to say, that was probably a lot more editing in that one, sound wise, for Mark. Which takes us to where we're at today. We're in the basement in St. Louis. We've got some good stuff lined up, especially today. Brendan, who do we have? I think this is really special because we're actually recording in our guest's almost bedroom. So he doesn't have anywhere to go. <laughs> he can't escape from this. But uh, He's actually laying in bed right now. <laughs> he's laying in bed. We just moved the equipment in around his yeah. bed, and he's like, what's, what's going on? I don't want to be a part of the podcast. I got told on the plane, hey, by the way, you're on the podcast tonight. <laughs> Whether you like it or not. Uh, he is a man that's very near and dear to my heart. We've spent uh, long, long hours together <laughs> uh, on the golf course and off the golf course. Um, going back to his childhood, he was the captain of the All-England team, or the England team, I should say, and maybe not the All-England team, Correct. although they were probably All-England. <laughs> Only at Wimbledon. <laughs> Only at Wimbledon. All-English. <laughs> He's the captain of the England team. He uh, went on to play his college golf at Purdue. Uh, maybe something that we can get into later because I love the story of how you chose Purdue. (laughs) (laughs) And he was the uh, Big Ten freshman of the year there. First ever. First ever. Uh, Went on to have a stellar collegiate career and then decided to turn pro and travel the world with yours truly, which I think (laughs) was probably the end of his golfing career. (laughs) He had a bad roommate. And he is now a Golf Digest top young teacher. Is that right? Best young teacher, yeah. And uh, my golf coach, Mr. Chris Mason. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> it's quite the intro. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty good. When I get to do an intro, I really, really get in there. I appreciate the I effort. I'm pretty hard. Right off the bat, in golf, it ages a little bit older. What do you have to be age-wise to qualify as a young teacher? I mean, are you, are you for those who are listening yes. you and, be... and aren't familiar with an English accent, <laughs> are you 10? Are you 15? <laughs> you have to be under 40 years old. Okay. So I've still got a few more years left. I'm younger than you think. So I got on when I was 32. So uh, was obviously gonna, coaching Brendan helped getting I was gonna on the guess, list. I was going to guess that you were 16. <laughs> That's so kind. Is it the gray hairs that are showing that off? It's either really kind or really weird. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> are you being... sure that I helped that? <laughs> no, not at all. No, I think it was probably the LPGA girls. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Brendan and I had the same agent. That's how we met. When was that? Uh, 2005. Met in probably 2005. Traveled a yeah. lot together 2006 and seven. Yeah, US yeah. Pro Tour, I think it was. So Chris and I, <laughs> we have shared cars. We've traveled together. We have shared many beds together. Fondly. <laughs> Fondly. Uh, when you're playing the mini tours and you don't have any money, you've got to split up the room as many ways as possible. And, and we would travel together. And then with uh, Joe Scoverin, who's Ricky Fowler's caddy. Yeah. So it would be kind of a rotation. There may be a cot. There may not be a cot. <laughs> there may be one bed in the room. There may be two beds. We would show up and, and figure out whatever we had and see if all three of us could work it out. But You and I, we could sleep as though. I think that's why you and I were always together. Joe yeah. was always on the floor, and you and I were like silent sleepers. So, I'm like, I'll take Brendan. See, I always figure that the guys who are in long-term relationships are better guys to share a bed with because they know that there's somebody else in the bed. Like, I remember on the Canadian tour when I would have to share with uh, Liam Kendrigan, 
he would be a good guy to share with. But then Joe Lanza didn't have a girlfriend, and he would be like smacking me in the face. We'd, have to, we'd put up the pillow barrier. <laughs> you know, we'd put up this whole pillow wall and that, that you would hope you could kind of lean up against and, and not actually touch the other guy. But <laughs> Joe would still have a tendency to hit me in the face in the middle of the night. We had our long-term girlfriends, didn't we? Yeah, we did. And yeah. now our wives. We're, we're relationship guys. You were a good bed buddy. Yeah. <laughs> wow, this is gone off the rails quickly. <laughs> I, I was going to say, how do guys end up coming together? Like, did you guys meet playing? The main, the main thing on? for us was the agent, wasn't yeah. it? Peter Webb. He did a great job and he recruited about five or six guys. And then he would organize all of our travel for us. So he said, you guys are getting in and someone's going to get a rental car. All three of you are going to stay in the same room. You're, you're going to go on this flight. You're all going to meet up at this time. And then it just happened that the three of us got on really well. So we'd share cars and we'd share rooms and would figure out a way to get someone to their tea time and share the car back. And it worked out really well, and we got on really well. Um, I had a great time. I had such fond memories of, of those days when you had no money and yeah. you're just trying to figure it out. I was, I was eating Chef Boyardee, um, just cracking the tin open and getting a fork and eating that for lunch just because that's all I could afford. Yeah, yeah. Um, those but, were the most fun days. And it's funny, too, like looking back at it, how, how fondly I look at those days as well. And my, my dad always told me while we were going through them, he's like, these are the glory days. These are the days you'll always remember. You're looking back at these days and think how great they are. And, and they really were. I mean, we had so much fun. It was just anything that we got to do was the biggest thing ever. You know, yeah. it's like, oh, somebody's putting on a party over here. We can go over there and have a beer for free. It's like, <laughs> it's awesome. This is so great. You can't beat that. Yeah. It's pretty amazing that the three of us have worked our way to the PGA Tour on some capacity. Obviously, yeah. you're playing and Joe's now caddying for Ricky. And then I'm a, I'm a coach on the PGA Tour. So just the fact that we all found our way and found our love. Yeah, um, I think it's pretty incredible. But, uh, you know, I, I'll never forget, and I tell this story a lot to my students, is um, I always thought I was much better than you. Like, I had a pretty swing. I hit it really good. Everyone told me how talented I was. But I would look in your eyes, and I'm like, this fucker thinks he's better than me. I think <laughs> he really believes it. <laughs> I think he really thinks he's better than me. How could he think that? Wait, were you guys laying in the, in the same bed when he's looking in your eyes? <laughs> <laughs> wake up in the middle of the night. I'm, I'm three the- inches away from his face going, I'm better than you <laughs> all night. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't know that Brendan was whispering into your ear as you were sleeping. Yeah. Stuff of nightmares. <laughs> when, when you whisper into his ear, would you do it with an accent? <laughs> I am better than you. I tried a lot of different ways. <laughs> I, I, gave it, I tried to give it Australian to really mess him up. A lot of people think he's Australian, so he gets really upset by that. This is all making sense now, why I didn't make it. Yeah. It was your wisdom at night. What a jerk. <laughs> no matter what you do, you'd always have eight hours of night of somebody <laughs> just beating you down subconsciously. <laughs> but it was, it was just one of those things with, with B is that he just, he, he knew he was really good. He knew what he had was, was better than everybody else's and he knew he would just stick with what he's got and just keep going and keep going and get better every year. And, and he, more than anyone else, has just got a little bit better every single year and, and still is getting better every year. And I wish I knew what the formula was because it would be easy to bottle it and sell it. I don't, I don't regret that I didn't make it. I just absolutely love what I do as a coach now. But there's certainly things I would have done differently now that I know how he made it and I didn't. You're talking about the, the early days. And Mark and I, we toured in a band together before Lincoln Park, Tasty Snacks. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows We've that. We've talked about it ad Maybe nauseum. the biggest band of all time. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. We had this 15-passenger uh, tour van. I don't even know how we got it. It was 
brand new and the nicest thing in the world. And next to some of the other bands we were touring with who were in kind of like junkers or, you know, vans that had a hundred thousand plus miles on it. We used to sit in that van and make each other sandwiches. The thing was though, it would be like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but it'd go one or two of two ways. Either like Mark would make me a sandwich and tell me what he's making me. Cause Dave's it. driving or something. Yeah. And he'd be like, this is like a barbecued chicken and I'm doing, I'm putting some avocado on it. And here's a little slice of cheddar cheese. Do you want bacon on you this? You want steak? bacon on that? Oh, great. I'm going <laughs> to okay, add I'm some bacon. But, or, onions. you know, you could order what you'd want. <laughs> you know, if, if you're like, okay, I would like X, X, that, that, that. But at the end of the whole process, you'd always just get like a peanut butter and jelly. They'd <laughs> 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 be like, and here you go. And sometimes we'd even like feed it to each other. Like, mm. Mm, how is that? Mm, is that so good? Oh, the onions are so much better than yesterday. It was like, never did you not funny. These? Yeah. And then when we went big, we could spend twelve dollars at Burger King and get three items each because they had the, like the ninety nine cent menu. And if you wanted to go Coke, that was your own choice. But you were going to eat less food, so yeah, we, our whole band could eat for twelve dollars. You could do the water cup Sprite for free, or you could do the dollar twenty nine Coke if you wanted something with a little, a little color in the beverage. And free- then Dave would look deep into my eyes and just say, "I'm better." the nice part about this time in uh, both with the snacks and and chris and i traveling on the mini tours is you're coming out of college so you're not used to having a lot of money anyway so you can kind of make anything work you're like "Eh, yeah six bucks for the rest of the week i'll figure that out that's fine (laughs) like (laughs) chef boyardee yeah that's no problem okay love my chef boyardee yeah if you guys had in your experience it was an agent or whatever that kind of matched up some different guys did you see on tour at that point any examples of guys trying to do that and having it just like blow up in their face? Like if, if somebody put you guys together and you're just like, Chris likes to stay up till three in the morning and Brendan likes to go to bed at eight at night. And now we're traveling together. Were there were there versions of that that you were seeing on tour? That only ever lasts a few days. Yeah, I, mean, I wouldn't think quick. so. Yeah. yeah, and we we kind of had our own little circle of of guys that we hung out with, and there was probably five of us maybe something like that and we we didn't really get outside of that circle a whole lot we kind of would come home after the rounds and talk crap about the guys we played with <laughs> you won't believe what he did out there today he did this did that and, and then we'd have debates over who was actually good and who would actually yeah. make it or not and all that kind of stuff but i think one of the the good stories too is that when you figured out that you you wanted to teach yeah. <laughs> at the u.s pro down yeah. in tiburon yeah oh uh, that was one it was a tour championship wasn't it uh yeah i think it was the, our tour championship yeah that's right it was our last yeah. event and uh i remember doing the practice round it was really really tight greg norman golf course and it was just basically you hit it in the fairway or you're reloading which is just a nightmare for me so we're eight holes through um our practice round and i must have gone through 10 balls and i was like guys that's i'm i'm going to the range this is just awful and joe comes up and he's like hey can you look at my swing i'm like yeah sure i'll take a look at your swing and then our buddy David came up and he's like, hey, do you mind taking a look at my swing? I'm like, yeah, I'll take a look at your swing. And then I think Joe said something and you probably want me to have you look at putting. Before I know it, I'm teaching four of these guys the day before the first round of the tour championship. We get to the tour championship first round and I'm shooting, I think I shot 89 or 90. It was an absolute nightmare for me. And all I could think about is I wonder how Brendan's doing with his putting. And I wonder how Dave's doing with his swing. And I, I hope they really play really well. And I thought to myself, I've just spent 1500 bucks on the entry fee here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably in the wrong business at this point. <laughs> this is not a good investment for me. So I went home and probably need to figure out what I'm going to do for my career. And it was that point that I was like, I really love coaching. 
And I, if I'm more interested in how my opponents are doing and hope that they do really well compared to worrying about my own game, I knew what I was supposed to do. As it happened, I got a back injury in the next year anyway, so I was out the whole year and had to give up. So <laughs> I kind of got the decision made for me. But. Well, and now, now you've gone on to teach winners on the PGA Tour, major champions on the LPGA Tour. You've got a ton of LPGA girls. You've got a stable of young, ridiculous talent. Yeah. Players that get signed to major colleges at 13, 14 years yeah. old. And a big Instagram following and a lot of Instagram stalkers, as we know, that <laughs> like to check out all your pretty golf swings on there. <laughs> and I, that's the, the Instagram thing's been incredible. Absolutely crazy. I started it probably a year and a half ago. And just, just posting um, my student swings is basically what I was doing with a little, hey, this is what I was working on and this is what he's doing. Hey, congrats on winning this, that and the other. And then all of a sudden, it's just built up and built up. And um, it's been such a good platform for me to show my work where before I probably wouldn't have got the same recognition. They were like, oh, you know, Chris does, does a good job. But I don't think they really understood the amount of great players that I was coaching and how well they were doing. It's been an amazing place for me to show what I'm doing every day. And uh, it's been incredible for my career. Do you have a fan club? He does. I'm going Big some, fan club. I'm going somewhere. I'm going somewhere with this. <laughs> do I need a fan club? If you do, you should call them the Masonites. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I just came up with that. That was not prepared, guys. <laughs> See, Dave. It's just the three of us. <laughs> Dave. <laughs> I can't drop. I can't drop this microphone because I'm afraid I'll break it. <laughs> so when you when you transition at that point, how old were you when you were 26 when I stopped playing? I think there's a lot of similarities in doing something that's like what you're passionate about and then figuring it out almost like we were talking about a little bit earlier, then trying to figure out like, can this be a business? Like, can yes. this be a job? 25, 26, maybe late 20s, whatever. That's, that's the stage two in music where if it's not working, you kind of have a good idea at that point at least of yeah you could take that inventory and then figure out yes where do we go from here similar for you guys looking back i was a bit foolish because i went to a really good university had a really good education back in england and i came out of university and thought okay i'm gonna give myself three years right if i can't make it in three years then it's probably not for me the people that really make it and, and you can tell me opposite but the people that really make it they don't have a plan b mm. they're, they're gonna play golf for 10, 15 years, and they're just going to keep going and try to keep getting better. And then eventually they'll, they'll get to the point where they get better. But I was too, um, I don't want to say clever, but I, was, I, I had a very specific timeline. I needed to show massive po- progress in order to feel like I was actually getting somewhere. And I felt what that did was every day put a lot of pressure on myself to do this massive jump to the PGA Tour. So I ended up going to practice. I'm like, hey, if I just do this today, I'm going to be on the PGA Tour tomorrow. But if someone like myself, a coach had just grabbed me and said, no, Chris, you've got plenty of talent. If you have a seven-year plan and you just keep working on these things for the next seven years and you're on tour at 29, that's pretty good. You'd be pretty young at that time to be on the PGA Tour or be a rookie on the PGA Tour. So I'm sure that's similar to music in that you just can't keep going for seven years and have that kind of money to back you up. There's a really interesting thing that I've read that basically in our thought process – you always way overestimate what you can get done in a year and way underestimate what you can get done in 10 years. And that's from a, from like a business sense. If you're looking at what you want to try to accomplish, you're always going to think like, I can do this, 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 this in this next year. And you're usually, obviously you're kind of overshooting yeah. what's possible. 
in whether it's music, whether it's golf, whether it's like technology, whatever, if you're trying to figure out like, okay, what's going to, what's it going to look like in 10 years, you almost can't even begin to describe what that landscape could look like. If we scale that back a little bit and really allow ourselves to dream big for that 10 years, then you can get there, but you got to give yourself that runway. Like you got to yeah. give yourself that, that time, and that space to do it. Yeah, I think people are getting much better now at understanding what it is that's required in order to be successful at golf. And it's much easier to measure the progress of whether you're getting where you want to or not. At the end of the day, there's a, there's a different mental barrier that you have to get over in order to get to Brendan's level. So whether, whether you work on that or not, I, I feel like that mental ability is somewhat trained over the 20 years of you playing golf, not necessarily something that can be trained from a coach within a couple of years. So even though he probably doesn't realize that he's been trained mentally to do as well as he's done, everything from his experiences in sport to who his parents were to where he went to school to the tournaments he played and won have led him to the point where he believed he was good enough and, and came, came to that point. And I think that's very, very difficult to train over the course of a year or two. I think it's just in there. Right, and if you, right. if you talk to great performers or anything, they, they don't really know what it is that they did. They're just there and they have those skills. Going back to the no plan B with your youth students, would you ever teach that? Or would you ever tell them, like, your best bet if you want to be <laughs> successful in golf is not to have a plan B? <laughs> don't go to school. Yeah. Don't learn anything. Don't have any skills. Music was starting from age five for me was always something I really, really loved doing. And it wasn't until I was finishing college where it was even like, oh, maybe I should try to do this professionally. In my wildest dreams, it wasn't an option. It was almost like I was too practical to even believe that that was oh, wow. a possibility. And then at a certain point, it was like, oh, like this set of guys that I'm with and what we're doing right now, like, let's see what this does. And so we, granted, every if you look at Lincoln Park, every guy in that band was a little bit of a different story, like coming from a different perspective. I think Brad and I were probably pretty similar in how we were doing it. Brad had played from a young age and, you know, had a, he's ridiculously smart and could do anything in the world that he'd apply himself to. And then other guys like Chester was just like, I just want to sing. Like he was, he's a really, he was a really bright dude too. And could have done anything he applied himself to, but he was always just like, I just want to sing. That's what I want to do. Period. Kind of different guys yeah. coming at it from different spaces. But do you think, could you go to an 18 year old An 18 year old comes up to you and says, Dave, I love Lincoln park. I really want to have a world famous band. What do I need to do? Is there, is there a formula like there possibly would be with golf or is it more luck and being in the right place at the right time? I mean, if I'm talking to this imaginary person, my first question would probably be like, what do you mean by you want to be in a world famous band? And then we could work from there. Like if it's just straight up, like you want to be famous, like if, if that is your goal, then there's a lot of different ways you could potentially pursue that. If that's your only goal is attention, then maybe you want to address what that is and why you feel that way and Maybe there's healthier ways to pursue that or go about doing that. You know, let's do some soul searching in that. But if what they mean is I want to write music that gravitates people towards it and that resonates with people and that they relate to, and I want to be great in that sense, and then as a byproduct, you know, there's going to be some fame associated with it, then I'd start to steer more towards the, the idea of like your songwriting craft and how you're working on that and what you're putting into it. and So you do feel yeah. like it's a skill that could be learned. Yeah. So in music, we've talked about this too, that the interesting thing about music is that it's not based upon who's the best. Golf, you just figure out who's going to shoot the best number on the course. And at the end of it, we're going to add it up and that guy wins. In music, as far as your ability levels, you just have to be good enough on your instrument. 
And then you have to actually have these other factors, some of it luck, some of it timing. You've got to be able to write songs. If you don't write your own songs, you've got to be in a relationship with someone who writes songs that you can then relate to and that you can express in your own way. And there's all these X factors that go into it. And even like taste levels in music is, is a really complicated thing too. Like if somebody says like, I just want to write great songs, then the response has to be like, well, what's your, what's your yardstick for what is great? Like, how are we, how are we going to measure that? Are we talking great songs in the sense of like the Beatles? Are we talking great songs in the sense of like Weezer, the blue album? Are we talking great songs in Britney Spears, Britney Spears, great pop songs. See, some people will laugh, but there's there's also great pop songs in that mix too, and there's bad pop songs, right? Mm-hmm. There's I won't mention any names. Um, one of my favorites being "I'm Too Sexy," but there's bad <laughs> pop songs too. That, so good, it's bad. So, so bad, it's good. Yeah, that's like a, a guilty pleasure. Is that sure? We just started a guilty pleasure uh, <laughs> Spotify playlist. Me and Shinoda. Actually, I think Shinoda's been doing it for a while, and it's actually really funny. He asks everybody what is your song that's like your biggest guilty pleasure and it has to intentionally be something you're obviously like kind of embarrassed about or admit and it's a list of just awesomely <laughs> awkward stuff and some people will be like that's not like what like you're guilty that's, a that's guilty not pleasure. guilty pleasure that's what's just wrong, a what's, solid what's, song what's wrong with that song yeah what's yeah. wrong with frozen dave that's just a pleasure <laughs> <laughs> nothing guilty about that I'm do just... you want to build a snowman i mean <laughs> come on let's go out and play I wish I knew more of the lyrics. I keep, I keep going. Anyway, yeah. So it's more subjective. Like It's just like being an artist. It's a bit more subjective than, say, golf, where the great thing about golf is if you're shooting the scores, no one, no one can tell you you can't go up. Right. It's, it's, that's the great thing about golf. And a lot of people will fool themselves and think that they're way better than they are. But the fact of the matter is a 68 beats a 69, and that's, that's it. Right. Well, and similar to the way that you thought, right, to where you're like, I have this great golf swing. Everybody's telling me I'm great. I should be able to beat guys like me or like Tommy Ganey yeah. or, you yeah. know, the guys we were playing against, right? Yeah. But there's so many more intangibles. So it's interesting that you say, like, you think there's a formula for, like, getting the guys to where they need to be, getting the guys and girls where they need to be. I think there is, which I think you provide them, like, the outline for everything that you can give them. And then how much do you think you can teach them as far as, like, understanding their tendencies and understanding shot selection and all these things that I call intangibles, which is the reason that I think players are great. How do they know that when the flag's here and the wind's there and you've already hit a bunch of bad shots for the day, you can hit this, this shot and it will not go left. Yep. Right. And it may be a stupid shot. It may be like a shot that like nobody would ever teach you how to play it that yep. way, but you know, it's not going to go somewhere. Because it's less about knowing where it is going to go and more about knowing it's not going to go somewhere, yeah, right? Exactly right, yeah. And I never knew that when I was playing. And I, lo- I had to learn that through my top players like you and IK is to understand where the ball's going and then play whatever that is, whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, you're just trying to put a score together. And that's the most important thing. And people just forget that when they're practicing. They forget it when they're playing. Yeah. It's not just a score for that one hole. It's a score for 72 holes, which, which sometimes gets lost. Yeah, and we see plenty of guys uh, and have and will continue to that are just incredible as far as like swing and talent. And you go like, what's wrong with this guy? You should beat everybody. Yeah. And then it's like, well, this other guy over here with the little hitch and his get along and that weird <laughs> grip on the putter is going to beat him every time. Yeah. Someone asked me the other day, she was one of my LPGA players. She said, um, who swing do you love on tour? 
and, and who would be the model? And I said, I really don't teach a model at all. I have certain fundamentals that I like to see. Um, if you look at the top 20 in the world and, and at the moment, 25 in the world, and you'd fall into this category, I would say their swings are more unconventional golf swings. They're mm-hmm. not textbook golf swings. They're not really pretty like an Adam Scott. Um, I'd say Justin Rose is probably in that category. But apart from Rose that... And, Rose and Rory, and that's yeah, about it. That's about it. Yeah, you've, got, you've, got, right. you've got a bunch of people with different fundamentals that work for themselves, but most likely they know exactly what happens yep. under pressure. They know exactly what happens when things are going wrong, and then they know how to fix it as a result. And I think that really gets overlooked in coaching and playing nowadays because people think there can be a formula. Plan A is know your swing. Plan B is no plan B. <laughs> We've already learned that. For all you kids out there who want to be professional golfers, Chris Mason says... There is a formula. There is a formula. Plan A, know your swing. Plan B, there is no plan B. <laughs> Go you, get them, kids. Going back to that, though, with younger players, how do you address that? Like, how do you... I tell all of my players that they can achieve whatever it is that they want. And I, I'm a huge believer in mindset and the quality of your self-talk and everything that goes in. And I would never, ever tell anybody that they couldn't do something because I, I truly believe if you, if you focus all your energies on something, then anything is possible. Having said that, both the ladies and men's game now are getting to be distance-dominated games. And it's, it's changed tremendously, I would say, over the last five to six years. Mm. I'm six foot three and 200 pounds, and so is Brendan. And everybody on tour seems to be going that way. They're just getting bigger and faster and stronger, and everybody's hitting it over 300. You can win on tour, I would say, hitting it 280, 290, but you're going to struggle. It's just that's the fact. It's a speed game now. Careers will be shorter um, just because there's going to be more injuries. And I think uh, if you don't hit it far nowadays, I don't think you can be very successful out there. You might have a couple of years, but that'll be it. I always say I'm really glad that I'm the age that I am because it gets so much longer all the time. And the kids get longer, younger, too. All your kids that are 14, 15, 16 year old, they hit it so much farther than we did when we were. And forget about equipment and whatever. Like they just swing it way faster. They swing it better. They swing it faster. They have better coaching. They have better tournaments to play. And they're just all better players. Yeah. And I think you're getting a lot better athletes as well. And all of a sudden they're hitting it so far. Yeah. And I mean, there's guys coming out of the web.com tour every year. You hear about the guy, oh, he's hitting it 40 yards past Dustin, you know, and you're like, wait, what? That can't be a real... It's like Cameron Champ now yeah. is what we're hearing. Yeah. Cameron Champ, Cameron Champ. He's hitting it 40 yards farther than Dustin and Bubba and those guys. And you're just like, all right, well, I'm glad that <laughs> yeah. there won't be 40 of those guys out here next year. That's nice. But maybe in 10 years, there will be 40 of those yeah. guys. And by that time, I can be easing my way out <laughs> so I don't have to deal with any of that. Yeah. Even when we were playing mini tour golf, 2005, 2006, Monday qualifying. We would just go straight into the Monday qualifier. And if yeah. you shot your 69, you were probably in the PGA Tour event. Nowadays, you have to go to a pre-qualifier on Wednesday or Thursday that's 80 people deep. You've got to shoot 67 to get through just to the Monday qualifier where you've got 100 people and you've got to shoot at least 65 just to get in. It's The standard's just so much higher than it was and there's so many more great players. But you managed to figure out a way to keep improving and get better. Is that just the component of there being more money in the game? I'm a I'm a big mixed martial arts fan, UFC guy. Having followed that for the last 15, 20 years, where it used to be you could come in, you know, you could be all heart and like scrappy kind of guy and whatever else, and you could like get it done. 
And as there got to be more and more money in the sport, then obviously it started attracting more and more guys who were top-level athletes from the get-go. Build, height, weight, size, whatever. But you're starting to attract some of that top-tier, top-echelon athlete into the game as there's more and more money. And then get to 2018, there's not you're not going to see any guys fighting at that top tier of that top level who are just like the all heart guy. You know, it, you've got to have a minimum of certain level of natural athletic ability as a building block. And then you've got to have heart and then you've got to have the work ethic. And then you've got to put in the time on top of that and build the blocks from there in golf. Do you think it's like, is that like a similar thing? Like the tiger woods era, it shifts all this money and now it's, it's that much more attractive to a top level, a top tier athlete, kind of coming to the sport and so you're getting these guys who are I definitely think quicker, faster yeah. with their speed. It's definitely that and and you do that coupled with the fact that these same athletes know they won't have a career in football, American football. They won't have a career in basketball. <laughs> probably not going to have a career in baseball. So that same level of athlete have probably been playing those sports growing up and now they're like, well, where do I go from here? Well, I'm a great athlete. Let me give golf a go because – Tiger's cool and everyone's making a ton of money out there and it's on TV every week. And I think there's a lot of people going that way just because Tiger made it cool, made it mainstream, brought all the money into it. And then you've got a lot of these other factors to it, right? So you've got parents maybe like being more open to it. Maybe they like to play golf or maybe they just don't want their kid playing football because they don't want them to get concussions, you know, or hockey Mm -hmm. or anything that's, that's more physical. You know, maybe you've got, um, better athletes just being like, Hey, I don't get made fun of for playing golf. Like I used to, like kids used to 10, Mm -hmm. 20 years ago, at least as much, you probably still do, but just not as much as you used to. Um, I, I, still, always, I still make fun of people who play golf. Yeah. Me yeah, being one of them. Yeah. <laughs> Keegan always likes to tell the story about taking his clubs on the bus and how everybody made fun of him, you know, and then fast forward 15, 20 years and he wins the PGA championship. And now all those same kids from his hometown want to be his best friend. They're like, Oh, I've known Keegan forever. He's the best guy. He was always, we'd play golf together. And it's like, no, you wouldn't. I was there by myself with my (laughs) fishing rod stuck under the bridge on number six. And I'd take a break by myself and try to catch a trout. And then I'd go play six more holes, carrying my own (laughs) stupid bag around. There's a lot of soccer happening in the U.S., I think, because people are transitioning out of American football. Mark being obviously a big proponent of that with me as well. I think the NFL has to be in decline in some respect. It might not be in one year that you see it, but in 10 years you might see way more change or difference than you could ever imagine up front. As far as what I'm seeing, my friends and families, especially that are raising sons, their willingness to let their sons play football is so much less than when like me and Mark were growing up playing football together feeds those athletes, I think more so into soccer than ever in the U S and then also into areas like golf. And with that, and with us in the U S having just missed the 2018 world cup, which we're still a little bit depressed about Tottenham. That's your club. It's my team. Where are we at in the future of us soccer? Mark, you have to speak to this cause I know you're very, opinionated about it and tottenham and do you like for chris where's tottenham going so we're moving into a new stadium this year so mark, over the next mark two teased years you earlier oh today God. that with the them maybe getting bail coming back which <laughs> no chance <laughs> mark's reading like soccer gossip magazine.com or <laughs> whatever he's doing to find out that information you got so excited oh, like, did you hear something and mark's like no i didn't hear. <laughs> oh, where are we going with soccer boys in the u.s 
I think it's super exciting. You know, 20 plus years ago when the MLS started, it was more or less an extension of the college sport, right? So the collegiate soccer level spilled mostly into the MLS, whereas now if you look at an MLS club, majority of the players are international players. And we're not only just getting those those players that are kind of just past their prime, you know, the Beckhams, Thierry Henry's and David Villas, but we're also getting a lot of these younger players now who are 18, 19 years old who typically would go play somewhere in Europe and have to fight a little bit to get on the premier team. But now they're able to come play in the MLS, get in 36 to 40 games in a season, make some money and, and spend two or three years there and then kind of move on. So we're getting tons of young new talent. The fan base is, is growing. I heard somewhere that like the average attendance of, of Major League Soccer is, is stronger than Major League Baseball and basketball. Um, majority of the stadiums are sold out. We've been going to the LAFC games this year, and it's super exciting. Again, you know, on LAFC's like starting team, when you go down the roster, we have a guy from Iran, Mexico, Belgium, Portugal, uh, Portugal Uruguay. Canada. I mean, there's only like two or three American players on the team. So it's becoming very diverse and there's tons of quality talent. I would guess that in five or 10 years that major league soccer is within, you know, the top four or five best leagues in the world. I was saying to my wife the other day, all the kids seem to play soccer growing up. Mm -hmm. Like it's the first thing that everyone puts their kids into. It's soccer. Mm -hmm. But at some point they move into these other American sports, whether it's basketball or baseball or golf or whatever it is. They have to stay with soccer. If, if America's going to start doing any good, they've got to start staying with soccer and then moving up and getting these amazing coaching systems through. Unfortunately, at the moment, the MLS is still looked at in Europe as kind of a last mm -hmm. hurrah league mm -hmm. for the Ibrahimovic to come over and, sure. and mm -hmm. do his thing at 36 or whatever he is. And mm -hmm. Beckham tried to do his thing and he was 36 or something mm -hmm. like that. So until it's looked at as uh, a serious league where players go in their prime, mm -hmm. It's going to be difficult for America to catch up to Europe. You've got to get some, you, got, you need a superstar, is what you need. Yeah. You've got to get an absolute world class player who probably goes and plays in Europe, like a is it Pulisic? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Tottenham were trying to sign him. I was excited about that. Yeah. But um, if, if you get a player like that who's one of the best players in the Premier League or the best players in the Bundesliga who's American, then you, you've really got something. You need a world star player, and, and that'll do it for you. Give it 10 years. <laughs> 10 years, you can do anything. You never know. You never know it, what we're going to do in 10 years. It is amazing that there isn't a, just a couple of top, top players where you're like, okay, list the top 10 soccer players in the world, and two of them should be American. Yeah. Right? You would think. Yeah. Just in the, with the size of the population and the amount of players and the amount of like good athletes and everything. We were talking about the money factor with golf earlier. But there's so much more money in soccer than there is. I mean, if you're a top, top player, they're seeing all these transfer fees and everything that's going on right now. And what did Neymar get the other day? 200 and At least 100 bucks. 52 million or <laughs> a something. Minute. A minute, yeah. The interesting thing about soccer as a game, and I, every, I am so programmed now by social media to twinge every time I say soccer instead of football. Because every like obviously when I write soccer on Twitter, I just I am bombarded with like, it's football. Blah, blah. It's not football in America. It's called soccer and whatever. Well, you can get into that later. I almost derailed myself completely from even knowing where I was going. <laughs> I, I'm back. What was I saying? I'm back. 
the craziest part about it is like China is soccer crazy. Like if you look at what they're doing right now with their money and, and Korea is too, and it's like a huge Asian movement. But similarly to the issue or the problem we have in the U S is you can't develop as a world-class soccer player on your own. You have to be playing against top tier competition all the way through, especially your developmental years. So, you know, if you're 10 years old, you need to be playing against the best 10 or 11 years old. If you're 16 years old, same thing. If you're 20, same thing, right. To develop at that pace, you can't do it on your own. There's the soccernomics book where they're, the big question was how can the U.S. always provide world-class goalies but not world-class players on the f- field players? The idea being, or at least their conclusion to some extent, was that as a goalie you can develop as a world-class athlete in that position without having to play with world-class guys around you. You can develop the skills to be a world-class goalie just through training. Like you know, one guy like running drills with you and you reacting and you getting the, that skill set to be then go play as Casey Keller, or then go play mm-hmm. wherever and, and have success in all these high leagues all over the world. You can't develop as Lionel Messi if you're growing up in you know the U.S. or even maybe harder growing up in China. There's a huge population and a lot of interest in soccer, but not necessarily a lot of like top-tier competition to play against. So with the MLS improving everything else in the U.S., I think that that like, gives us a big a big boost moving forward. The more that that grows, the more that that development is able to happen at our youth levels. Look out world. I think we'll get better and better. <laughs> right? Chris is laughing, but I think he's way on board. I think I've sold him. I hope they do. We're I'm, not... I'm going to live here the rest of my life. So I want them to be good. <laughs> <laughs> We're not winning the world cup in 2022. Everyone calm down. Like that's not going to happen. Yeah. We're not going to win in Guitar. It's too hot. It's too hot. Are they doing it in be like today in St. Louis? I don't even know if this is true. This might be complete horseshit, but weren't they talking about for a minute doing it like in the winter? Just because it, 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 no, it'll happen in the winter. So the World Cup yeah. that year will be in the winter. Yeah. Just because oh, really? it'll be a little yeah. more manageable weather. It'll be like right? in a February, March time. Huh. Yeah. That'll be interesting. I didn't know that. Smooth transition. We've had some discussions in the past on um Pest control? Yes, we have. <laughs> Which I have, I have to tee up Chris for a, a pest control story, at least one, because I know he's got a minimum of two that I love. <laughs> so give, give the boys your, your favorite one so of the two. Anyone that knows me knows I'm terrified of mice and rats. I, I'm the least handiest man. I'm the least manliest man anybody <laughs> knows, actually. My wife does all the uh, DIY around the house and Takes care, of, she takes care of all the no pests and stuff. That. We, that might be a common thread outside of Mark. Outside of Mark. Group. <laughs> Mark's pretty handy. But we, uh, in, our, in our old house, we had a townhome. And it was sort of a three-level townhouse. And you drive into the garage and go up a flight of stairs. And then you're in the living room. You go up a flight of stairs and you're in the kitchen. I went down early one morning with my son. He was a baby boy. He was probably seven years ago. And we'd had mice at the time. And we were telling people, hey, we've got mice. And Molly went into her work and said, hey, you know, we've got mice, I think, in the garage. And she said, oh, um, I heard that if you scream really loud at the top of your lungs, you'll give it a heart attack. And the mouse will drop dead. So I'm like, wow, that's really interesting. Did, You're like, I t- can do that. Who told that. you this? This is someone at my wife's work. Okay. I'm like, that sounds like an like old wife's story. But she said, oh, no, she, she tried it at work and it, it boom, sure enough, look at the, the mouse just had a heart attack and it just dropped dead right there. So I come down this early morning and I hear this at the garage door. I'm like, oh my God, the mouse is trying to get in the house. So I go to the top of the stairs and we've got this baby gate and I'm listening in and I turn the TV off and listen in. Sure enough, this thing's trying to get through the bottom like rubber of the door. 
So it keeps going, it keeps going. I'm like, oh my God, mouse is going to get in our house. So I'm standing at the top of the stairs, holding onto this baby gate, and this mouse gets in, and I'm shitting myself. <laughs> nightmare. This is an absolute nightmare for me. So I start screaming at it, and it starts running up the stairs at me. Right? It's, it's, Literally, as fast as now, it can. He's now charging you. It's bouncing up the stairs, straight at me, okay? So I'm like, oh my God, what am I going to do? So I grab hold of the baby gate, and I start shaking the baby gate, and I go... As high as I can. <laughs> trying to give this thing a heart attack. Nothing. It keeps running up. It didn't work. So I try and go higher. Ah! Ah! <laughs> My kid is crying his eyes out. Like, boy, he's like, what is going on? I am rattling this baby gate, screaming at the top of my lungs, and this mouse is not moving. It's just flying up the stairs straight at me. It goes underneath my legs, into the closet, and I'm there standing there shaking like a leaf because this thing's just charged at me. My son's bawling his eyes out, and and we never found the mouse. Never found the mouse. (laughs) He probably died. He probably died in your closet somewhere, and you just never found him. Damn it, Sarah, I told you that wasn't going to (laughs) work. My wife came running down. She's like, what's going on? I'm like, I'm screaming at the mouse. It's not dying. No hard I told you that wasn't going to (laughs) work. A lot of this stuff you just make up in your mind, though. Yeah. You know, there's no reason for me whatsoever to be scared of mice or rats. But we, I remember it. Uh... Except for the plague. <laughs> That's a real thing. But apparently it wasn't the rats. It was the fleas that were on the rats. But bubonic plague. That's scary. <laughs> that so scary. You've, got, you've got that in your defense. There could be fleas on those rats. Yeah. yeah. We're I, don't know if, I don't know if he has the bubonic plague. But. It's possible. I'm just, it's I'm possible. in Chris's defense. This That's mouse scary. was tiny, too. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little guy. Uh, so uh, at the golf course, I was doing a lesson at Madeira, and we're on the 16th tee, and the, the sun's going down, and we're kind of, the tee's kind of jammed into the, um, into the bushes. So I stand up into the bushes, and this kid hits the shot, and he hit this... And I jump, I jump up, felt like 20 feet, but it was probably more like Phil's victory jump. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, I screamed. And um, I turn behind and there's a little baby rattlesnake. And it's just up there, ready, ready to get me, right? Um, Luckily, we we managed to avoid it. But every time I went up onto that tee for about three years, my heart would just be pounding out of my chest. Like I couldn't control... My physical reaction like, to uh, the fact that guys, this, we're going to skip this. Yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we uh, hit up from the uh, white tees. <laughs> Let's go to number seven. Uh, <laughs> see you later. <laughs> so it's just it's funny what the brain will do to the body, but oh, I'm such a wuss. This was a big like snake season this summer around where we're where we live, and we've got two dogs. They're both labradoodles, and they are the snake hunters. They are complete cowards. Do you, you know where this story is going? <laughs> these these two dogs. They're ridiculous. Can you do the story in your dog's voice? You want me to? <laughs> yeah. With the... At least start it. Start. So, uh, 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 so that's how my dogs uh, talk. That's the beginning of anything they say. <laughs> that's a whole other thing. We have an app. My wife and I. We have an app where you can make a photo of your dog talk. I've shared it on Instagram, or whatever. So I think I've used it on the member guest Instagram as well. So if you're listening, go to that, and you can see both Dozer and Bear tell you things to do. Anyway, there's been a period of... A period of Rush over there. Go, go check that out, because you're not going to be disappointed. There's a period of our lives, and by period I mean the last month, where we've just communicated back and forth between me and Lindsay with 
having our dogs speak messages and just really pedestrian things like, hey, what do you want for dinner tonight? But it'll be the dog talking to me. Oh, what do you want for dinner tonight? <laughs> like that kind of stuff. And the dog, and then the pitch shifter makes it. Yeah, you get the point. Anyway, <laughs> these dogs are both ridiculous. They're the biggest cowards in the world, except when it comes to like noises in the bushes. For some reason, with that an area where they should legitimately be scared because we have rattlesnakes in our area and in our yard and whatever for that, for no reason whatsoever with that, they're fearless. And it's probably because they're idiots. So my wife's like, we need to get these dogs like rattlesnake trained. So there's a dude who comes out to the neighborhood and he holds, it's the equivalent of like swim lessons for kids where you can all do it at one person's house and you all chip in whatever else. But this guy shows up with his bag full of rattlesnakes that he catches on his ranch, you know, in the Inland Empire. He brings out his rattlesnakes that he's caught and does dog training with people from the neighborhood who brings their dogs. And I think he charges everybody like each dog gets 10 minutes and it's like 80 bucks or something to rattleproof snake your dog. So he's, this guy's making like 300 bucks an hour when he does it to show up and do and rattlesnake And by rattlesnake proofing, you mean your dog gets bit once and they decide, I'm never doing that again? <laughs> well, I, there's an Orange County version of this I've learned and an L.A. version because we share this. <laughs> Let me give you the Orange County version first. So he shows up. He's got real rattlesnakes. He lets them out of the thing. The whole thing is like he puts a shot collar on the dog. Anytime they go and get curious with the rattlesnake, then they get a little shock. So they really quickly learn like I don't want to have anything to do with that and especially when it rattles and makes <sighs> makes this little noise then they get like a shock to like get away our first dog goes and he's the smarter of the two he gets shocked and he's straight up like running and hiding in the bushes like his pure chicken shit instinct has <laughs> kicked in he now it now has transferred over into snakes like he gets it and P.S. like my six year old is here watching the, the dog training and she's loving it. Dozer's hiding in the bushes after he gets his shock. He wants nothing to do with the snake. When they bring him out, he's adios. He's gone. He gets it. <laughs> Bear, our other dog, he approaches the snake. I think he gets a slight shock, but doesn't really respond to it. And then it gets a little bit dodgy, so he gets the heavy shock. And he does a backflip. <laughs> so to his credit, he figures out, don't mess with the rattlesnake. The punchline, though, is my six-year-old says to Lindsay, Mom, I want to see Bale do a backflip again. <laughs> basically like, let's have him shock Bale again. I want to see him do a backflip. So that, that's the Orange County version. Okay. It's like training with live bullets. So I'm sharing this story. I, we can't believe that this is, A, actually a thing, and B, our dogs are now rattlesnake-proof, whatever that means, quote-unquote. We're sharing, I'm sharing this story at one point with Mike uh, from the band and his wife, and they kind of cut me, cut me off a little bit in the story and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, we've heard about this like up in L.A. The guy comes out, and he's got the snakes, and they're like defanged and like no venom and everything else, right? And we're like, no. <laughs> like These are just normal snakes that he's caught in his yard. Like, in L.A., they're doing them with no venom, and they're like, yeah. Like, you oh. wouldn't want your dog to and get then, bit and my, by one of those. Then, then Mike goes like, well, yeah, like, what if there's an issue and, like, something goes wrong and the snake just bites your dog? And I look at Lindsay and I'm like, yeah, what if what, the snake just bit the dog? And she's, she's like, What if yeah, they shot know. you in the face? <laughs> what if he would have shot you in the face? SoCal's got some weird, weird animals, though. I mean, I grew up in England where it's 
bunny rabbits and squirrels. Not like American ground squirrels, like nasty ones, like the nice fluffy tail squirrels that go up the tree. Proper squirrels. Yeah, proper squirrels. Your squirrels drink tea, right? <laughs> and they love the rain. An, an yeah. afternoon tea. <laughs> Scones. Well, I was, I was going out of the house one day and we had this, I'd call it a barbecue. You guys would call it a grill. But um, I'm closing the door behind me and I hear this. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God. So I start, I start hightailing it to my car, right? I immediately called my wife and I was like, hey, honey, you just don't let the kids outside. If kids are small, don't let them outside. There's a mountain lion in the grill, for sure. There's definitely a mountain lion. It sounded like a tiger, but it's probably just a mountain lion. So we, San Diego Zoo, <coughs> potential for tiger. There is potential for tiger. It sounded like a tiger. So I go to work. I come back. Hey, have you seen anything from the grill? No, nothing at all. I was like, have you been outside? No, we haven't. Haven't heard anything. I said, I know what I heard. There's something in that grill for sure. So my sister-in-law's around there, and she's, she's crazy. But she's like, I'll, I'll look and see what's in the grill. So she gets the cover off. Can't find anything. This time I'm up on the balcony with the kids looking down. <laughs> We're like the hose. You have a megaphone, so your scream will be even louder. I'm more to the left. Like, I, I'm going to scream through this megaphone. This thing's going to have a heart attack for sure. How, how loud do you have to scream to kill a tiger? <laughs> uh, so she takes cover. Nothing. She goes around the back. There's nothing in there. She opens up the side door. Nothing in there. She's like, I don't think there's anything in here. And I was like, well, open up the propane. <laughs> I know I heard something in there. She opens up the propane door and there's a giant raccoon sitting there, just, just perched up, like just looking at her. And she goes, ah, and both the girls come running in. She's like, I told you so. <laughs> I told you there was something in there. Chris is up on the third floor. Going, <laughs> See? I knew it. I knew it. But those things can be vicious, too. Yeah. yeah. They've yeah. got big old claws. Yeah. It was, it was, I mean, it looked cute because it was just sitting there with his eyes wide open, <laughs> petrified of us. But we were in the living room just sitting looking at it because we left the door open. Luckily, it had gone in the morning, but I got, got rid of the grill in a heartbeat. That's why I, I tell my wife that's why I don't grill anymore. <laughs> Sounds like I don't do anything. <laughs> no, it doesn't. What do you just teach golf for ten hours a day? That's what you're always saying. I know nothing about anything. I don't know everything about golf and nothing about anything else. Amazing thing with Chris is he loves his his hotspur and he knows everything about golf. He's best teacher in the world. Like if you want to learn about golf, he's your guy. If you ask him a question about anything else in the world, he will give you some sort of answer that will make you scratch your head. (laughs) So he has to come to me for advice on the world. Which is very scary. I do. I'm the uh, 10,000 hour guy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's funny when I um, stopped playing professionally, a guy at the country club, he said, "Uh, what what are you going to do for a job? And I was like, I really don't know. I've only ever played golf and I don't really know anything about anything else. And um, he says, well, why don't you come and work for me? It's like we trade stocks and shares. And I think, well, I'm, I'm an educated guy. I could do anything. I think I could get in the corporate world and do whatever I wanted. I go into his basement and we're basically um, we're trading stocks and shares. I know nothing about it whatsoever, but now, of course, I'm trading millions of dollars every day. And uh, I hated it from day one, even though he promised I was going to make lots of money. I didn't make any. And, uh, <laughs> that's probably why you hated it. That's probably why I hated it. If you got a big check at the end of it, you would have gone, ah, job's okay. Yeah. So anyway, what we were trying to do was we were trying to get these um, accounts at big, big firms like um, – Goldman Sachs and all those Citibank, right. all the ones that went under. So we try and get accounts that they would give us stock on the IPO and then we'd flip the IPO. 
So I'm like, oh, I can do that, and I'll, I'll, I'll make lots of money. I'm motivated. So anyway, I got, I got on the end of this one deal. The guy gave me 20,000 shares, which was unheard of at the time. My boss says, I think this deal's going to go under. I said, I need, I need to take these shares down. He's like, don't take these shares down. You're going to lose a lot of money. So anyway, I take these shares down, and it opened up $2.5 down, I think it was. So I, I was down 45 grand. I didn't obviously have that money. So we flipped it off. I lost. I was down 45 grand. I was shitting my pants waiting for my boss to come in. The boss comes in, grabs my throat, pins me up against the wall. He was a New York guy and starts screaming and spitting in my face. And I'm standing there at this time. My head's up against the wall, his hands on my neck. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I don't. But, but I know I'm down 45 grand. And all I really want to do right now is teach golf. <laughs> so then the crash comes in, was that 2007, 2008? And then all the deals dried up. So I think I made it out. I think I was down $20,000 when I, when I quit. So I had to make it up in golf lessons. So that was quite the start to my career. <laughs> You're right. I know nothing about a lot of stuff. <laughs> If there was just a, an end of that story where there was some kind of a varmint that ran across like the office desk and you could like scream at it and then be like, that's it. I'm never doing that again. I wanted to scream at the guy, but his hand was so tight on my throat. <laughs> that's why I'm never doing that again. So these two guys being Brendan and Mark have younger kids. We have a little bit of older kids. I was curious about this with you because I think all four of us at this table have unusual jobs. And I know for me, one, my kids don't have a perspective of the fact that what I do is unusual. Like, they know it is, but that's like, I'm just always their dad. Yeah. Do you ever answer that question? I'm thinking, like, from their perspective and how you deal with it, dad's going to work, and this is what dad's job is. Do you, ever, do you I, think I about down, it in those terms? Well, I come downstairs every day, and I say to them, hey, kids, don't forget that your dad's super famous. And I'm going to go to work today <laughs> to teach other equally famous people. <laughs> so then the kids go into school and they say, hey, my dad's famous. And they're like, what does he do? Like, he's a golf coach. <laughs> so that's basically what goes down in my house before I go to work. <laughs> but they know, they know that I travel and they know what I do. And my son comes out to work and he's, started, he's just started to get into golf. He recently but, got the bug. Yeah, thanks to Brendan. But he went, came and followed Brendan at Palm Springs and now he's... I'll fully take all credit. Ad- he's fully addicted. That's awesome. How do you how do you manage your time? Obviously, all your clients all want to get better. They all probably need you every single day to do that. Uh, with great difficulty. <laughs> the thing for me is I I want to be an incredible coach to every student I have. It's impossible. It's just it's just a really difficult thing where I can't spend as much time and attention with everybody that I would want to. Mm-hmm. If it was up to me, I would. You know, it'd be great to have so much time where I could spend tons with my family and still be an incredible coach as well to everybody they wanted to. I'm in a great position at the moment where it's somewhat pick who I work with. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically everybody I teach is a really top-level player um, and a top-level tournament player. So a lot of my time and effort goes into into that and texts and emails and phone calls. And But I wish I could be a much better coach to a lot more of my students. I wish I could take everybody on too. Have you had some students where you're, I don't need to be a coach to that student anymore? Or you've kind of had a... Fortunately, I've really enjoyed almost everybody that I work with. I haven't had to tell anybody I don't want to work with them anymore. But most of the people I work with are extremely self-motivated 
and big time tournament players. So it's really, really fun and enjoyable for me. And the thing I'm telling my kids is, is, is to your original point is my dad always said, do something that you love because if you love it, you'll be good at it. And if you're good at it, you'll make lots of money. And I, I keep preaching the same thing to my kids. I, I don't really care what it is that they do. Everyone thinks I want my kids to play golf. Everyone thinks I want them to get into sports. I, I don't care what my kids do. I just want them to be really passionate about something and really throw themselves into something that they love and they want to be really, really good at. And then, then, then they'll be happy. That's the cliche. Uh, is it if you love what you do, then you'll never work a day in your life? Is that what it is? Something yes. like that. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. Sounds good. Uh, to quote like myself, it. is that yeah. Michael? Did <laughs> I just make that up? Yeah, that's a Dave. Yeah. Brennan, you've been working a lot lately. Been working a lot. <laughs> a lot lately. <laughs> Golf is hard. <laughs> stupid ball and go in the stupid hole. It's very easy. What do you tell your kids? I don't know. I tell them all kinds of crazy shit. <laughs> do they care that you're a, a rock star? They're excited about it in some respects and in a lot of, in probably more ways than not, they don't care. Like if, if there's 24 hours in their day, then a minute out of that day, they might be excited about it. But for the rest of every other minute, you know, I'm, I'm their dad or they see me doing dumb crap. Same thing as with my wife. It wouldn't work if she was really excited about the Lincoln Park thing, which she is not when it comes to me. Wow. You know, she loves the music we've done. She loves the ability that we've had to raise our kids and travel in that environment. And, you know, she loves going to see shows and she loves seeing me being fulfilled in what I'm doing and all those good things. She appreciates all that stuff. But she's never, to her credit, and probably because well, she's she known married me for you forever, for your lordship. Yeah, she married me for she my wanted titles. She to be the lady of the manor. Yeah. <laughs> and for my ridiculously awesome life insurance policy. <laughs> <laughs> Boys, I don't think we're going to get any better than this. So at this point, Chris. Where can people find you online? Plug yourself. This is your opportunity to say, hey, I am... Oh, you know what else I wanted to say before we finish up? Which I thought was really, really smart and witty. <laughs> you, can't, you can't tee it up with that. We have to decide if it's smart and witty. Well, that's kind of... Brennan, do you notice how Dave always buys an extra five minutes for himself at the end of every podcast? <laughs> yeah, I like that. No, that's good. I got to get all, all my best stuff. We'll see. A mason who is a worker of bricks and steel. We almost have a perfect synergy here. Mm. We would if my name was spelled M-A-S-O-N, but it's not. Thanks for looking me up, Dave. M-A-Y-S-O-N. And Brennan's last name is Steel, but it's spelled with an E at the end. That is is where we're going. Which is also not a building material. (laughs) I knew you guys wouldn't get it. I knew you guys wouldn't get it. You never get it. Dude, a mason works with bricks, bro. Is Brick Mason a private eye? Brick Mason, <laughs> Brick Mason private right. eye. Damn it. All right. Damn it. Mark, this last six minutes has gone off the rails yeah. here. <laughs> can you help us out? Chris, where can people follow you online? ChrisMasonGolf.com. How do you spell it? <laughs> with a Y. Or uh, at ChrisMasonGolf. <laughs> Touche. Thank you. <laughs> Chris, the traditional spelling, M-A-Y-S-O-N. Golf.com. Or at Chris Mason Golf. On Instagram. Correct. Are you on the Twitters? I am. The I'm Instagrams not. are where you want to you follow Mr. Mason. Get the visual effect. And if you want to follow us, we've purposely made it really confusing. We want to know. Here's, what, here's my thought process on this. We want to know that you really want to follow us. Right. And we want to make it a little bit of work. 
That's why it's member-guest.com if you want to go to the website. It's member guest official with Instagram, and it's at member guest on Twitter. Did I just do that right? Did I, right. Did I get it? You nailed it unless I can't figure out what they are. And we neglect Facebook a lot. Do we even do Facebook these days, Mark? Do people do Facebook? Is that a thing? Not for me. Anyone? We have a, a very... We're, I'm building our MySpace page. It's... <laughs> <laughs> We're going to come huge. 2019 is the year of MySpace for us. Yeah. We're going to come huge to MySpace. Guest is spelled with you a never Y. Know. Chris, one, thank you for coming. You arrived today as a guest of ours, but you're leaving here as a member. This is probably one of the, if not the, most distinguished memberships that you will ever be offered or a part of, should you accept, and I know you've already accepted. Has anybody declined? I don't think... I, I think we're going to bestow the membership on somebody, whether they'll decline it or it's not. Undeclinable. Yeah, it's undeclinable. So all that to say... Member you're, Mason? Is that my... Mason member. <laughs> That's my porn star name. You can follow him at Member Mason. Hang with on, the Y. Before we finish, you guys are killing give me, me yeah. everybody's porn star name. <laughs> it's your middle name with your street you grew up on. Middle name? I thought no, it was your, first dog, your first what? pet's name. I thought it was your middle name. No. First pet's name. Your fe- first pet. What was well, your first pet? My, that changes my. What, what's your first pet? Drastically, Chipper. Chipper. <laughs> Chipper Fernleaf. <laughs> what's your middle name? One. Dean Fernleaf. No, it's Chipper. Mine's Jaws Clockhouse. <laughs> True story. True story. You've done porn under that name. <laughs> At member guest. <laughs> There's a Y in there somewhere, <laughs> a silent Y. I'm Snowball Oliveira, <laughs> also known as Snowy. Fritz Amalia. I like Ruffle Amalia. Yeah, better. Ruffle Ruffles. It was a Ruffles Ruffle. I know your dog's name better yeah. than you. Yeah, Ruffle Ruffle Ruffle. 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 <laughs> it wasn't plural. <laughs> Singular Ruffle. You Ruffle guys was spent a, way too much time together. <laughs> Ruffle was a lassie I, dog, d- and he just barked nonstop. No. That's what I remember about Ruffle. R.I.P. Ruffle. Dog heaven. Whoop whoop. Whoop whoop. Uh, <laughs> rest in peace, Ruffle. You are the best. Woof, woof. Can, can you do our our sign off in uh, in the dozer and voice? Bear voice? All right. Well, first, any final words of wisdom? Create your own reality. What does that mean? Fake it until you make it. (laughs) Dress to impress. (laughs) It's not the same. (laughs) You just lowered it. From us here, do you want you want it in dozer voice? Yeah, I would love it. May your advice fly straight and your guitar stay tuned now and forever. Adios. Adios. Cheers. Thanks, Chris, for letting us uh, crash your bedroom. Now get out. You can go to sleep now. You got it for that though. You got to put it in the bed.